It's awesome to see you. Uh, just a quick report. Um, I think the last I heard from Randy, he was in Concord and was, I think they were going to start heading south maybe this week. And so they're having a great time. Uh, he sends along his wishes. Uh, haven't been doing any business with him, just keeping up with what's going on, helping him out with the stuff he doesn't know about a camper. So he's figuring that out too. So, uh, but he's having a great time. And so it's a blessing to get to share with you this morning. Uh, if you're new, you know, there's new faces. There have been new faces in the crowd every week. If that's you, um, I just want to say thank you for choosing to worship with us at Journey Church. It's a, it's a true blessing to have you here. And our prayer is, is that when you walked in the door that you were treated like this place is your home because that's what we want it to be. And so again, thank you for worshiping with us. And so we're going to continue on in this uh, venture through the book of Acts. You know, some people call it the Acts of the Apostles. I think that it could be aptly named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we're going to keep wading through that. Last week, Dan started out in chapter 3, and he shared about the, the lame guy at the, at the beautiful gate that Peter and John healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so a truly powerful story. And we're going to dig into that a little deeper. But first I wanted to go back and I wanted to uh, focus on where this happened a little bit, just to give you some background, because there's some wonderful parallels in this, I believe. Um, it's happened at what's called the beautiful gate. And I've got a, a picture I want to share. I've shared this a lot of times. This is a model in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. It's about as big as probably a football field. Um, it's, uh, it's huge and it's been painstakingly constructed to match Jerusalem, what it would have looked like in the first century. They use actual scripture to, to tell them what this may have looked like and also um, in more detail, the writings of Josephus, the historian, ancient historian. And so you see in the center, this is, this is actually of the Temple Mount. When you hear about the Temple Mount uh, in the Bible, this is maybe what it would have looked like uh, in Jesus's time. And so you see the, the temple, the kind of grayish structure in the middle that towers over everything. as Solomon's uh, temple that, that was renovated and expanded by Herod the Great. They called him the, the butcher and the builder. He, he, he did some amazing things. And so this is uh, a huge structure surrounded by a colonnade. The red roof structure is what a lot of people believe would have been Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. But I've circled for you on that picture, the gate. This is the beautiful gate. This is where um, this took place, where this beggar's friends brought him and laid him at this door. Um, and so this is kind of the geography of where it happened. I've got a modern day photo of the Temple Mount as it stands today in the next photo. And so in this, we see what the, the remains of the Temple Mount. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and there's plenty of evidence, archaeological evidence that says that's true. You see the walls uh, are shorter. It's only about a third of the height of what the original Temple Mount was in the days of Jesus. Now, when we see this picture, we see that golden dome it, it's what identifies Jerusalem for us. And, but inter interestingly enough, the Golden Dome is actually a Muslim shrine. It's called the Golden Dome of the Rock. And it's built over Mount Moriah where Abraham uh, was said to have offered up Isaac. And the temple 
was in this location as well. And so it's a Muslim shrine built in the 6th century when all this was kind of reconstructed with what rubble lay around. To the, to the left, you'll see a structure, and that's actually a mosque. It's called the Alakska Mosque, and it is an active mosque today. The, the Muslims control the Temple Mount. It's a concession that the Jews made uh, when they took back Jerusalem to appease and assuage uh, the Jordanian Muslims. And so they control the Temple Mount. It's, it's an interesting place to go. Uh, one, if you're a non-Muslim, there's about maybe an hour or so during the day that you're allowed up there uh, because the rest of the time they're practicing their prayers and their rituals. When you're up there, you cannot take a Bible. They will not allow you to have a Bible. You cannot say the word temple because they deny that the temple existed there. They deny that uh, exact history. And so they have these police called the waft, and they're the moral police, and they, they, uh, they, they make you comply with those rules. They'll quickly start yelling at you if you're breaking those rules. But that's all an aside. I've circled on this one the location of the beautiful gate. This is it. This is the historic location, even though that's not the exact gate. It's the historic location of uh, the Temple Mount. Those walls, like I said, were reconstructed in the 6th century. And so I've got another photo here that's kind of a close-up of the beautiful gate today. You kind of see the golden dome popping up. I took this picture from the Garden of Gethsemane. This is overlooking the Kidron Valley. And uh, you can see that the walls of this gate are closed up. They've been sealed. And you see some structures in front of it that's actually a cemetery. See, the Muslims uh, closed in that wall and they built the cemetery in front of it thinking that when Jesus returns, that's going to stop him uh, from, from entering Jerusalem. And so we'll see how that pans out for him. So this is called the beautiful gate. The beautiful gate. It's also called another, now it's called several names. One, it's called the East Gate. And the reason it's called the East Gate is it's actually, it's not just the entrance to the Temple Mount, it's actually the entrance into the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so the East Gate is how they would have identified it. There's all kinds of gates uh, historically and gates now within the walls of the, of the old city of Jerusalem. And they were usually named by their function. Uh, there's the, the beautiful gate because it was beautiful. Uh, there's the dung gate. And that's exactly what it means. It's where they take their refuge out. It's where the sewer flows out of the, the, the city. Uh, and so those remains, those ancient remains are there today. There's the Jaffa gate. That's close to where we stayed in Jerusalem. And it is, leads to the port of Jaffa. There's the Damascus gate that leads to Damascus. And I believe it's outside of that gate is where Jesus was most likely uh, crucified. And so this, it ha this gate has a lot of names, but there's a lot of significance for this gate. There's a lot of things to know about it. One is, this is the gate that the priest would have entered the temple complex through. And so there's a parallel to a parable that Jesus taught here. It's a parallel to the story of the Good Samaritan, where this guy was beaten up and left on the side of the road. And, and you see, he was a Samaritan, and, and or he wasn't a Samaritan. The Samaritan saved him. But these priests, this guy, uh, it says in the story, Jesus said the priests would kind of walk way out of their way to get around him. So the priests were headed to the temple. 
And so if they had come into contact with blood or if they had come into contact with a dead man, symbolically, they would have had to go through a ritual cleansing. And so if it was like the Passover, they'd miss the whole thing because it took like seven days. And so it was because of their own thing that they ignored this guy. Well, now, now fast forward to this actual event when these priests are walking by this lame beggar every day. And I got to kind of wonder, were they just kind of dismissing him? You know, Dan talked about how the guy was poor because when you're lame in, in those days, you couldn't work and so you had no subsistence and so you had to beg for your alms, you had to beg for your living. But there's another attribute of someone who was lame that's important here. See, the priest of the day, they would have looked at a guy that was lame and, and said, okay, he's got sin in his life and God's punishing him. And in this case, the guy was lame since birth, though, so they would have just switched it and said, well, his parents sinned, and so he's paying the price for that. And so he was an outcast. This guy was on the very fringe of society, probably not even allowed to worship. The gate is probably as far as he could go. And so his condition was a whole lot worse than just being lame. And so we see these priests probably just ignoring him. Now here's another interesting bit about this east gate, about this this, uh, beautiful gate, also called the golden gate. This is where Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, this is where he entered. He entered through this golden gate. That's when they laid the palm branches down and laid their cloaks down and Jesus rode in on the colt of a donkey. And so I got to believe that maybe Peter and John, there was something significant about them using that gate today because normally they would go through the southern gate of the Temple Mount. And so I think they were, they were doing this for impact. At least that's my opinion. So let's pick up where the story ended. So Peter and John have healed this guy, and it says that they're on their way to the temple in a time of prayer. And so they're headed to the temple to pray. And so this tells me that these guys were sharing in a priority that Jesus had. See, Jesus made prayer a priority in his life. He lived a life of prayerful guidance. And so we see that in Peter and John, but they've already been instructing the church. Remember that first church we talked about in chapter two when it said they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles? Well, I think Peter and John were teaching the value of prayer, this priority of prayer that Jesus had. You know, it's kind of interesting to get to the golden gate, the, the beautiful gate, they most likely crossed over the Kidron Valley. And that's the path that Jesus took many, many times as he prayed on the Mount of Olives and he walked across the valley and into that golden gate. And so Peter and John, they've obviously learned something from spending their life with Jesus for the last uh, three and a half years. And so all kinds of just significance and parallels to different stories. But it's pretty clear to me that they were sharing in Christ's priorities when they were doing this. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 11, if you want to follow along, you're going to pull it up on your phone or open your Bibles, but we'll go ahead and read on. <clears throat> it says this, while the man held on to Peter and John, that's the lame beggar that they had just healed, it says, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. Remember the red roof structure I showed you? When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? 
why do you stare at us as if it's by our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? And so here we see them, we see another priority emerge. You see, they weren't taking credit for this. They were deflecting any attention. These people were no doubt probably trying to treat them like prophets and, and uh, they wanted to see it again. And so they were quickly saying, no, it's, it's not us. And so, you know, that's, that becomes pretty rare. The, these guys were probably looking at, you know, think about it. They, they would have been pretty popular. Uh, but they decided, no, we're going to give credit where credit is due. We're going to give credit to the Holy Spirit. We didn't heal him. Just like Jesus never gave, never took credit. He always, he always praised and worshiped and exalted the Father for everything that he did. And these guys are following suit with him. They're not going to take credit for it. You know, we've seen some huge falls in our society from, from ministers and from leaders who have developed something big where God is really stirring. And we see that when those ministers, those leaders start to take credit for it, there's always a fall, always. Yeah, have you guys seen the movie um, Jesus Revolution? Have any of you? Well, for those of you who haven't, I'll try not to spoil it too much, but there's this Christ-like figure and He's, he's kind of just roaming. He's depending on God. He's in the hippie movement. And I think that movie maybe cleaned up the hippie movement just a little bit, but, but it's, a good, it's a good story. So this guy encounters what I would call maybe a, a conservative pastor who's leading a, a very um, calm church, let's put it that way. And, you know, the people, the hippies or whatever that would come in, they weren't very welcome. And so this guy encounters this this Jesus-like figure, and he's intrigued by this, and, and the Holy Spirit responds in a big way. Uh, lots of people were baptized. This is out in California, and, uh, you know, big things were happening. This church was, was blowing up, and then there came a turning point when this Jesus-like figure started to decide that maybe it was him who was making all this happen, and he started taking credit and then, of course, things start to fall apart. And that's kind of how it works. You know, there are churches out there that were mega churches don't even exist today because of the cult of personality of the guy leading it. And so we cannot take credit. We always have to give God the credit. We always have to worship and glorify him. And that's what Peter and John were doing. So let's pick up in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses to all of this. Man, Okay, so there's no doubt about who he's talking to. He says, fellow Israelites. He's talking to the Jews. And this is a temple full of Jews. And there are Pharisees. There are priests right there in the crowd. And, and they, he is boldly convicting them of their complicity in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're not mincing words. I don't know if you've ever realized how much courage that that took for these guys to stand up 
and to do that. Remember, this is the same Peter that the night before the crucifixion denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times he denied him. Do you know that John is said to be the only one who was there witnessing the crucifixion with Jesus' mother? The rest of them were gone. The rest of them were hiding. They were scared to death they were gonna share in the same fate that Jesus uh, was going to within the hands of the Romans and the Jews. They were terrified. And so the only difference between then and now for these guys, the only difference happened on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit descended on these guys. They went from their knees knocking to being completely courageous in proclaiming the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. They were leveraging that power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's good that I go before he was crucified because now the counselor can come, the Holy Spirit can come and the Holy Spirit is with you always. You carry the Holy Spirit in your heart as a believer. Jesus and his humanity couldn't be all that, but the Holy Spirit can. And so that is what these guys, that's what they can attribute their courage to. And folks, question is, do you know that? Do you know that the Holy Spirit is a power that you can leverage? Do you understand that? And are we, live, are we living that out like we should? Are we doing it? Folks, that's what we're called to do. And so it's a constant resource that's available to all Christians, all those who believe. Peter said this, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man, man who you see and know was made strong in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you all can see. You know, we have a lot of gaslighting in our society these days. That means people are just saying, you know, you can't believe what you're seeing. You know, they try to explain that away. This isn't gaslighting. This, this is direct. This is, this is the absolute unvarnished truth. It's an exclamation point on what they just saw. And so Peter hit him. Peter hit him hard with the truth. He hit him tough with the truth. It says, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what has been foretold through the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. And so there's a hint of the gospel here. So Peter is laying on the truth. Peter is telling them exactly what went on and that they were all complicit. Now he's showing them a way out. He's showing them the answer to their sin. So he hits them with the bad news and then he gives them the good news of Jesus Christ and his promise. He goes on and he says, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off. Okay, so here's the truth again. See, the Jews, I think they would have known what he was talking about. It, this is a hard truth for them because it's their understanding, their belief that they're the chosen ones. They're it. 
You know, they're the only ones that are, that are, that are getting into heaven and they're a part of this community, um, God's chosen people. But Peter is telling them they'll be cut off from their inheritance if they don't follow Christ, if they don't believe in him. I'm sure that felt like a jagged pill for these people because they were being torn between the truth the apostles were, were telling them and the teachings of the Sanhedrin and of the priests and the Pharisees. There was a huge conflict with what was going on, with what Peter was telling him. And he continued on and he said, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So first he explained their fate for denying Christ, the separation from their inheritance, and then he offered them grace. He offered them grace, the way to avoid being cut off. You know, something they had all heard before. I mean, they were, they're Jews. They had heard about the Messiah. They've read about it. They knew the prophecies of Jesus. Now, they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament was being written at the time, but they had the Old Testament. They had the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament foreshadows and points toward Christ. Christ existed from the beginning. You know, there's a movement in kind of the progressive church these days to de-emphasize the Old Testament, to say that it's really not applicable anymore, that we have the New Testament, we can forget about the Old Testament. Folks, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into that. That is such an incomplete and, and a dangerous thing to say. The Old Testament is Jesus. It's all about him. And so Peter first taught as if the Jews were the only ones who stood a chance. Peter was ministering to the Jews. We're going to find out later that God's going to change his heart with that and that he's going to become a minister to the Gentiles as well. See, that's who we are. We're Gentiles. We're, we're not Jews. We're, we're Gentiles. But we're grafted in to the, to the family tree to God's family. And Paul said this in the book of Romans, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive, tree, uh, olive root. Paul called himself a minister to the Gentiles. And again, that's who we are. We're just as much part of God's chosen people as the Jewish people, as the Hebrews. And we're descendants of the very first church. That is such a cool thing for me to think about. It's like that first church we read about just, just a chapter ago, it said that they were meeting together, that they were worshiping in the temple courts together. They were breaking bread together. They were having communion with God. They were caring for one another. The old were providing the wisdom and the youth providing the strength. And they were, they were very, very in tune to God's call on their lives. Because it said in the Bible, it says their numbers were being added to daily, those that believed. And so see, we're descendants of that first church. Thank God for the first church because we're sitting here because of it, because they were obedient to God's word to multiply, to, to bring more into the fold. And folks, we're supposed to pick that up. I believe we're falling away from that. I think we're supposed to pick that mantle up. I hope in a hundred years, people are talking about Journey Church and how it's affected their eternity. That's my prayer, 
if, if, it's, if it goes by that long without Jesus coming back, I hope that people will point back to the folks they knew here as bringing them to the foot of the cross. So I want to close with three takeaways. Three takeaways. If you want to write anything down, you can write this down. But the first one is this. Um, allow your beliefs to shape your culture. More importantly, don't allow the culture to inform your beliefs. Allow your beliefs to shape your culture. Uh, there is a whole lot of mistruths out there in the world today. There's an identity crisis in our world today. And you know, I try to not judge other denominations. You know, we have a ministerial association here in Woodford County. And it's made up of Baptists and Methodists and folks from the Church of God, the Church of Christ, an independent church. And you know what? There's a lot of things we won't agree on about how we worship. But we have one thing in common, and that's Christ. And we can sit at the table in fellowship if we agree on that much, if we agree on the supremacy of Christ, that he is the only way, he's the truth and the light and the only way to the Father. That, that we're allowed to, to break bread, regardless of what we believe about how you get baptized or how you take communion. But you know, there's one thing that I think we gotta be careful about. There's one table we shouldn't set fellowship with, and that's called progressive Christianity. I've preached against it before, and I'll continue to do it because it is, it is a huge um, a huge issue among us because progressivism is trying to infiltrate the church. And so what, what is progressivism? Well, it's when you deny that Christ is the only way. It's when you say there's many ways. It's when you start saying, well, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's watering down the truth. And here's the big one, when they have to rewrite or omit scripture to, to make their point. Folks, all of that is a very, very slippery slope that leads to outright heresy. And it's happening in our community. It happened to our closest neighbor just down the road. And so that is a threat to, to our existence. You can't, they can't defeat the gospel. That's not gonna happen. Lord, they've been trying to stamp that out for, for centuries and it's not gonna happen. But folks, beware, don't get sucked into that. It can sound good, it can sound, enti it can sound enticing, but it's not based on the truth. So I just wanna warn you about that, that progressivism. It's culturally progressive, but it's not Christian. Now that's a harsh thing to say, but when you deny Christ, when you, uh, when you try to abridge the word, when you try to take away from it or add to it, that's not Christian. That's by the Bible's definition, not mine. And so it's culturally progressive, but it's not Christian. So look out for those things. Um, the next thing, the next takeaway, be courageous in your faith. Boy, there's no doubt that Peter and John were being courageous. They were talking to an antagonistic crowd. They were poking the bear in the temple when they were proclaiming Christ and claiming his resurrection. You know, most folks that I talk to, when we talk about sharing their faith, about talking to other people about their spirituality, they, they say, you know, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I might be mocked. I'm afraid someone will get mad at me. I'm afraid I might not be able to provide all of the answers. You know, I hear people say that. 
And so, but it doesn't sound like a lot of terrible stuff to have to worry about. I mean, these guys, Peter and John, they weren't facing ridicule. They were facing jail. They were, a fa- they were facing death. And so, but they were so courageous that they didn't hesitate for a second to pronounce Jesus and his resurrection. They stood in the face of extreme prejudice and they made a bold, clear declaration of the gospel and they gave people space to respond. That simple. And that's how we're supposed to do it. That's how we're supposed to. We're supposed to follow that. They didn't pick this up on their own. They learned this by following Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus was their rabbi for that amount of time. And so they were prepared. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was all Christ and it was all about him. I believe they knew full well what they were in for. We're going to see in the next chapters the retaliation of the leaders that be for them basically just preaching the gospel. You know, we know that all of the apostles were martyred except for one, and they tried, and they exiled him. But they knew what, was, they knew what their fate was. But they had boldness, and they had joy, and they went on to it head on. And they took it on, and they, they took on the world for, for Jesus. And like I said, we're all here because of that. We're all here because of that. So the last thing I want to leave you with, and probably the most important thing I wanted to share with you, is this. Don't dismiss the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. If you forget everything else I said today, don't forget the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't dismiss it. Holy Spirit dependence was another one of those priorities that Christ had. As a matter of fact, all the other priorities that he had were built on that. Were built on his dependence with the Father, his dependence with that connection with the Spirit of God. It was what everything else hinged on. You know, it's really not that hard to understand that, that Jesus remains in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's a difficult habit to acquire. And I, I've kind of wondered why that is. Why is it so tough for us to, to depend and, and, and really even believe and acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think I, I've, I was just watching some other stuff and it kind of came to me through some, through some studies and, and it just kind of hit me. I think the reason is is because we don't want to surrender control. We don't want to give it up. We want to be our king of our own little kingdom. See, we don't want to give up our godship. And that is our obstacle. And so what does it take to acknowledge and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, it takes surrender. It takes giving it up. It's not something you earn. You're not going to serve your way to it. You simply have to confess your sinfulness and you have to accept God's power. And it's a huge power. It's something we can leverage on a daily basis for his kingdom. And that's why he came. And so don't dismiss the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, I alluded to it before, Jesus had this priority of prayer. So evident. So many times it said Jesus went off to pray, but again, it always says it was his custom to do it daily. I think he did it constantly. 
And so we're going to have an opportunity for you guys to do that. We've got this big space up here. We've built these kneelers that make it more comfortable. I'm going to be up here. I think Zach will be up here. We've got other people that will be here. If you need someone to pray with you, we'd love to do that. But it's also a time where you can come up and just deal with God on your own. You don't need us. We're here if you need us, but you can do that on your own. And you know, maybe you're going through some stuff and you just need God's strength. You need, you need the power of that Holy Spirit to buoy you. You can come up and pray for that. Or maybe you just want to come up and just praise God for the amazing creator that he is because prayer is just as much a, worse, uh, much a part of worship as what we're getting ready to do when we sing this song. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to open this space up for you guys to come up during this last song, and let's just deal with God in our own way, in, in that powerful resource that we have in prayer. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, oh man, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for that nourishment that we have, that, that, God, we can be restored, that we can look at your life and we can see the model that you created for us. God, you are an awesome God, and we're here for you today. There's no other reason. We're here to worship you. We're here to give you honor and glory and praise. And Lord, we just want to do that in the name of your, your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.